welcome back to Career Corner, where we believe you are the CEO of your career. I'm really excited for today's episode with my good pal, Alice Jones, who is the Chief Financial Officer at Yoshi in Nashville, Tennessee. Yoshi's doing some really cool things in the gas and automotive delivering service space. Alice is from the Bay Area. She's lived in Switzerland. She's gone to Princeton and got a degree in economics. In addition to working at Yoshi, she has worked at IBM, Notch Partners, and AppNexus. We cover a lot of great, interesting things in this fun conversation as we caught up after a couple years apart. Things like her two criteria she requires for every job, how to work through mental hurdles, and why you should actually believe that you're qualified for the job you want to apply for, why working in operations is wildly underrated, her attraction to solving problems, and why you should lean into what comes naturally to you, plus much, much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with my good friend, Alice Jones, CFO at Yoshi. Enjoy. Alice Jones, welcome to Career Corner. It's great to have you. Hi. Really a pleasure to be here. It's a real treat. Yeah, this is a good excuse for us to catch up. It's been a little while since we sat next to each other on 23rd Street in Manhattan. It is. Yeah, it's a great, great excuse. Very, really, really a treat to be on the phone. Um, and hopefully I can say something that, that helps somebody in some way as well. Oh, you definitely will. So, Alice, you're speaking to me from Nashville, Tennessee. I have a couple questions. Have you met Tim McGraw yet? And how long have you been there? Well, I moved here at the end of 2019. I haven't met, I forget Tim McGraw, anyone impressive at all, <laughs> anyone noteworthy. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I moved here kind of right before the whole place shut down. Um, and I was lucky that I, you know, got myself into a job before then and so on. Um, but, uh, it's been a lot of COVID stuff. So I've actually been in various places in the country during, during COVID, but right now I'm here in Tennessee where, where my job is. Got it. Got it. What you are a chief financial officer right now at a company called Yoshi. Can you tell us a little bit about what y'all do there and, and what your role is? Yeah. So Yoshi is, um, a startup, uh, and, um, the concept of the company is that you and I and everybody else should never have to go to the gas station again. If you look at the gas station model, um, it hasn't changed at all in a hundred years. And if we talk to every single person that we met on the street and ask them if they like their gas station, every single one would say no. Um, so the, the idea is that um, we're moving into a delivery-based economy and that uh, gas can be delivered to wherever your vehicle is rather than you having to uh, spend time at the pump. So in normal times, non-COVID times, um, we are very busy filling up consumer um, cars kind of while they're at work. So we go to somebody's work lot. Sometimes the work the company as a, as a benefit to their employees will sponsor um, kind of monthly membership for access to Yoshi. And then all the employees, you know, while they're just hanging out working and their cars sitting in the lot 
um, they get filled up and they just never have to think about it other than opening up their gas flap once a week. Um, so, so that's that. We'll also go to people's homes. Um, that's a little bit more expensive for us. So we love the work model, but these days, um, obviously less, less people sitting in offices. So, um, that's changed. Um, and then the, the other piece of, of the business, um, other than really the consumer, consumer driven business, which was the, which was kind of the original things that thing that got um, investors excited. The other piece of the business is what we call our fleet business. So um, we said the economy is moving into a more delivery based model. And um, as that's happening, you have all these fleets of vehicles owned by delivery based companies that need to be filled up. So you think about, you know, a, a plumbing company that has a bunch of plumbers. Um, plumbers are really highly paid people by the hour. And that company uh, doesn't want to pay their employees per hour to sit around at the gas pump. Um, and so they really, you know, benefit financially. Um, and, and, and also that person's not generating revenue the whole time that they're sitting at the gas pump. And it, honestly, it adds up. Um, so, so we'll go and fill, you know, fleets of vehicles overnight so that, um, people who have expertise elsewhere don't, don't need to spend their time doing that. So this, this is fascinating. I did not know that this kind of a business exists. In fact, I, I swear to you tonight I had, I'm going to smoke a turkey this weekend because I got a smoker. And so I'm going to practice before Thanksgiving. And so I'm in Charleston. We have this tropical storm coming through right now. So there's a lot of rain. The sun goes down early and I'm, I, my wife didn't fill up the gas tank. And so I was like, Oh, I have to go do this. So I don't have to do it in the morning. And Alice, I was literally standing at the Costco pump going, how much longer do I have to do this? <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. I was, you know, and I was, I was thinking in a different direction. I was thinking of Tesla and, and sort of that model, but you're right. It's it, there. I, I never go to a gas station. I'm like, I'm so happy to be here. At best, Costco is neutral for me. Uh, they don't even take American Express. So I can't even use my credit card, <laughs> for example. So it's really interesting. A couple questions. When you say startup, how many how many people are at Yoshi right now? Uh, about sixty. Okay. Little- how many people were there when you started? Uh, more than that. So we were in 20 markets when I started, not a huge presence in 20 markets, but we were really, you know, kind of in the growth mindset of a startup, grow, grow, grow. We have investors to fund it. And, you know, that's what we need to be focused on. When COVID hit, um, we strategically reassembled and we decided, look, we should really focus on the markets where we have a very clear path to profitability. Um, and so, so that's what we did. And I mean, really hard time for all businesses, but we shut down a whole bunch of markets. So, um, it wasn't, we've really grown in the markets that we doubled down on. So it, it, you know, it's kind of evened out. I think we were more like 75 when I joined. Um, so. That makes sense. So why, why is the work model better? Is it just because you can go to a company and then knock off? 10 customers at one time versus at home, which is a, a one-to-one? 
Yeah. So if you think about it from a profit perspective on our side, um, the time between Phillips or the efficiency of, of the Phillips is absolutely critical because we're paying our people. Um, and so if we're paying them to drive around, that's a lot, that's zero revenue to us. Whereas every time we're pumping fuel, uh, we get revenue. So, um, so we want uh, basically the density of vehicles to be very high. Um, and we get that on, on a lot. Whereas, you know, if we are just going from home to home to home, it, you know, it's just less dense and less revenue for us. Got it. What's, what's your typical customer like? Is it mostly the fleets? Is it mostly, you know, what's the percentage across individuals, companies, or the bigger fleets? So we really doubled down. I mean, the, the company model is really, a, it's a, it's a B to B to C, but it's ultimately the consumer model, right? Um, the company's just paying a, a monthly membership fee um, so that their employees don't have to, but most of our customers, I mean, the vast majority of our customers right now our consumer. And that's been very intentional. We strategically didn't focus on fleets. That's changed recently because we've needed to adapt to the times. And so um, we've been growing our fleet business this year. It's going really well. Um, but, you know, it's still not the majority of, of what we do. That's great. What was, we'll get to sort of how we know each other and where you were before. But what was your thought process in joining Yoshi and taking on such a big role? What did the interview process look like? What was your approach to get the job? Well, um, you know, I had worked at a startup before, um, but it was a quote unquote startup. So it was, had been around for, you know, a while when I joined, uh, set over five years, I, I should know that number exactly, but, um, maybe seven years or something. And it was, you know, a thousand people, whatever. So it didn't feel super startupy to be honest. Um, it had that culture and vibe, but it was, you know, an established company. Um, I, just kind of stepped back and I really like to get involved in a million different things. I mean, I'm in finance right now, but that's not actually really my background professionally or otherwise. And, um, you know, I just do wherever there are issues I want to go. I'm really interested in learning about them and figuring out if I can help, you know? And so that's, led me into finance. Um, when I came to Yoshi, I wasn't necessarily looking for a finance role, but that's what they needed. And that's on my resume. And so that's how I got recruited. Um, and, and as I looked at startups, I mean, I wanted something uh, um, that I, I believed in and was interested in. And Yoshi um, really hit the mark there um, in that, Again, just this idea of like delivering something that customers love. Like I, I mentioned that nobody likes their gas station. You should read the Yoshi customer reviews. I mean, people just flip. Uh, they they love it. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, that, well, anyway, um, 
So I, that, that was really appealing to me. And I just think is really exciting, kind of gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, and then also, I mean, honestly, you know, I want to do something that, um, has a lot of financial potential and Yoshi's biggest investors, um, are General Motors and Exxon. So, we really need, you know, uh, kind of infrastructure to scale. We need to be able to build a bunch of trucks and and so on, and you know, cover the country, et cetera. General Motors is really a perfect backbone for that. And then, you know, we're a fuel delivery company, so being tied to um, a fuel company uh, has been really powerful. We've got important people from both of those companies on our board. Um, and so, you know, that, that honestly, when, when you're, when you're interviewing people often say, um, oh, these, you know, these companies are invested in us. And then it turns out like, oh, this company owns 1%, you know, it's not real investors, but with Yoshi, it's, it's the real deal. I mean, they're, they're really, um, they're really invested and really important partners. Um, so, so that was important to me. The other you know, thing that I'll say is this is true for any job that I take, you know, moving around within a company or finding something new. I have to have two things. I've learned this about myself. I have to have, um, I, I need to be in like surrounded by people who inspire me. I, I have to, I need to like be the dumbest person in every single room that I'm in. Um, and that really, really motivates me to bring my best self to any given situation as if I'm, you know, really inspired by the people that I'm working with. And that's something that I've had in the past. And I realized like, wow, (laughs) this is, this is it. Um, so, so that, you know, I, I really kind of felt that in the interview process at, at Yoshi. I was really excited about the founders and the way that people thought um, and so on. And then the, the other thing that I need is I need to be learning every day. I get bored very quickly. Um, and so, um, you know, at, at prior companies, that's meant I need to be somewhere with a lot of change where I can change rules all the time. My purview totally changed. I I really do well in changing situations, but I also, you know, for me, I hadn't been a CFO before. um, And so a lot of parts of finance, you know, I haven't directly owned before. I haven't been a treasurer or on a treasury team. I haven't owned tax. I'm not an accountant. Um, So I'm just (laughs) sure I'm making myself sound like a great CFO right now. (laughs) But, um, but you know that I have a lot to learn. I have a lot to bring to the table. Um, but I, I also really have a lot to learn, and so I knew stepping into a role like this, if I could get it, if somebody would trust me to do it, um, would be a learning experience through and through. And and that's all um, panning out. So I've been really, really happy here. Is yeah. Thank you for walking us through that is is there an element of because when when you when i found out you were cfo on one hand i wasn't surprised at all on another hand if you look at my at least my understanding at the time of your background it wasn't it's not like an obvious trajectory like you just said you you weren't in some of those areas 
how how did that conversation between you and Yoshi work? And was there an element of fake it till you make it once you got inside or an element of all these things came to the surface that you didn't realize in prior experience or helped you? Did you have good people around you to sort of mentor you at all? A little bit of all three or something completely different? Like how did it, how did day one feel? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I was very candid in the interview process about what I do and don't bring to the table in a role like this. And I also, what I'd say is my dream job, you know, at the end of my career, what I aspire to be is not necessarily a CFO. Maybe it'll happen that way, but um, I, I don't really know what it is. Like, we'll see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like operate with some, I need to be here in 10 years. And so I'm going to do this, this and that. A lot of people do that. And that's great. That just isn't for me. Um, I just, I just try to find problems and solve them. And I try to find problems that I think I'll be good at solving um, where I have an edge. And that's where I say, I wouldn't just take any old CFO role. If, if the problem that the company needed to address was, you know, we're going public tomorrow. We need someone who can help us with that. Or we need like really a lot of, we're just implementing a real kind of, we're bringing in auditors for the first time. We need someone to make sure that we have every single control in place possible. That's, I mean, I'd, love to try those things, but that's not something where I'm like, I like, yeah, bring that on. Um, that, that would be a a real stretch, honestly, right right now. Um, whereas with Yoshi, I mean, and, and I was very transparent with the founders. Um, I, I don't know these things, you know, but, um, what the, what was happening in the company at the time was they, they hadn't, and a lot of, um, startups do this, they don't like hire a finance person on day one. They, they just don't. Um, and so there hadn't been, you know, someone with, um, experience in corporate finance settings, um, you know, kind of bringing that to the table and that was fine for the business for a while. And then they realized like, okay, it's, it's time. And so, um, there was a lot, like the main things that they needed were pretty, pretty foundational items and also just a lot of like how do you do this more efficiently like this is taking up everybody's time this you know kind of trivial finance task like we don't pay people on time we don't we don't really pursue collections that much you know so like some some things where it's just like here's a mess you know and and, and this is something that I said in, in my various interviews, and that's really true, which is I do not, like when you go into a job, um, you're handed a situation, right? Maybe you're handed a new team. Maybe you need to hire. Um, I don't ever want to be handed a machine and told this machine's working. Um, but it needs, you know, some oil and we really need to take it from, from 85% to 99%, you know, like do that. That's not the challenge for me. The challenge for me is here's a bunch of parts on the floor. We need a machine. Um, and that's what, that's what really interests me. 
Um, and so that, that's kind of where Yoshi was on the, on the finance, um, team and, you know, maybe over time, uh, and and I hope we'll grow and develop to a point where we need a better CFO than me, you know, and then maybe I can take on something else within the company because, you know, I hope that I have a value to add elsewhere. Maybe not, but, but that's, um, that's kind of how it started was, was things that I knew how to tackle. Um, but I did know, and everybody knew that I didn't have expertise in certain areas and I've, I've hired help in those areas. So there's a lot of, a lot of gold in what you've just said, and it's going to be hard for me to, to, to pick the first spot, but I want, I want to, I want to comment or ask you about a couple things you said. One is, I'm the same way I, in terms of my career philosophy, as you described, where it's, you don't really know what the end of the road looks like. And I used to, I I did have at one point a mile marker in my career of like, I want to hit here. And then everything after that was gravy. And you sort of hit the mile marker and you're like, meh, okay. And then you just go back to sort of what you do, what sounds like you do and I do is like every six months, I sort of look up and I go, Am I surrounded by smart and interesting people that I enjoy work with, enjoy working with? Am I solving interesting problems? And do I generally like where the train is going down the tracks at the place? And then I put my head down for others. And am I being, you know, reasonably compensated and things like that, of course. But it's more about that. I don't know if you you have anything to elaborate on that, but I also want to tie together something else you said, which I think some people might be uncomfortable with. I mean, Two things you just said indicate that you have a high level of confidence. One is you, I think people can look at a job description or a gig and say, you know, I don't have X, Y, and Z and, and just move on to the next one. And I also, so I think it takes a lot of confidence, self-confidence to, to, to not do that, which I think is a great habit. But then also to be in an interview and say, hey, let me tell you what I don't know, A, B, and C. I think it's a beautiful thing that maybe people might not be comfortable doing. Can you comment on either of those things or both? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, uh, I think it's probably accurate that I am confident and that that helps me. What, what you said about the way that people read, um, job descriptions and then decide that they're qualified or not. I think that's really important. Um, and particularly because it's a gendered phenomenon. So there's a lot of evidence showing that if you say in your job description as an employer, we need 10 years experience, blah, 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 blah. Men will read that. And if they have seven years experience, they'll be like, well, it's fine. Women will read that and they'll be like, oh, I only have seven moving on next one, you know, and I, I, um, I don't know what my very like natural, natural, natural tendency is with that in general. When I hear like, Oh, women tend to do this. I'm usually like, huh, I don't think I do that. But I, but I did, you know, hear that fact pretty early, um, in my career. And I've been very intentional about not doing that when it comes to job descriptions. And it's been terrifying. It's not like it feels, you know, good. Um, 
but and especially honestly especially in in finance where it's like yeah but like is an auditor gonna like agree that you're qualified to do your job you know i mean you get scary thoughts like that um and people ask you questions like that so 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 yeah i think you're you're right that i'm lucky that i pay attention to that and that i you know have the uh, confidence or maybe stupidity at some point to just go yeah and you're right because when i read a job description of like 10 years ah, you know i did this like internship so that's a year what you like <laughs> I, i'm automatically rationalizing to get there or as you said it's close enough and i i did i, w- I was talking to another person in an an episode that's going to come out soon, which is, and we were talking about almost like doing, uh, Tim Ferriss talks about this, but like the worst case scenario exercise, it's probably called something cooler than that. But in that situation, right, male or female, what would you say to a person who maybe is running into that mental roadblock or, because I mean, honestly, the worst thing that would happen is you just don't get it. You don't get a call back or, you know, you get an interview and it doesn't go, but, but if you do have any mental hurdles, how do you work through them or how would you suggest others do? Yeah. Well, I I've had that conversation with friends before, especially right now, everybody's getting laid off and applying for jobs. I've had that conversation recently with a few of my friends, just literally apply for every single thing. Like you're going to have a very high rejection rate and like, Honestly, it also gives you an excuse for a reason why, like, oh, well, I was buying things for it wasn't quality. And like the the best, the good scenario is you get surprised. Your expectation is already that you don't get it. That's your natural expectation. So it's not that depressing, but like maybe you get surprised and then you have an interview and it doesn't go well. Like, I, I, I mean, when you're looking for jobs, you have a lot of interviews and they don't all go well. You know, that's just a reality. Yeah. And then ideally you can learn from it and apply it to the next one. Yeah. So I want to go back to Yoshi's strategy and just, just make sure I and, and the listener understand. So, so what, it sounds like you have some heavy hitter investors. Are there any other investments? Like, are you on a, what round are you on from, from VC or is it just those two big ones or other means we have um other investors so we have some vc money um and so on um we're only we just raised our series b in february of 2020 it's gonna be i think in the news pretty soon um but that was really lucky for us i mean that timing right before covid in march we raised a round Um, and so, uh, so that, that was just unbelievably lucky and it was really cool for me personally to join a company running finance, you know, kind of right as that's happening. That was really, uh, you know, new and exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. That's a, that's a big win. Thank you. So, So like GM, so you have Tesla, right. With the electric car and then you have sort of traditional, gas guzzlers and it's it seems like the the market opportunity that y'all are trying to hit is essentially what other uber eats or just on a larger scale there's there's a convenience element right like tonight 
I would have loved to just been like, you know, what? I don't have to go to the gas station tonight. I'll just wake up and it, I'm ready to go when I uh, mm-hmm. head out the door. Is is it so? So if uh, it sounds like convenience is a is a factor, are there other strategic factors in terms of the market that you're trying to hit? Like, it sounds like there's you know gas is not going to go away anytime soon. So is, is there a is there like an evolution of that? market uh, that you're trying to to unlock and how do you think about a company companies like tesla or gm who are getting into the electric car game or is it not really something that you all consider very much so i mean those are great questions i'm not surprised you've brought up tesla so much um the two things uh related to that on just kind of yoshi's strategy and what happens to a gas focused startup as uh, the world tries to trend away from gas. And I'm very supportive of that for the environment. Um, So two things. First of all, I can't believe that I didn't mention, I'm really embarrassed. The other thing that Yoshi does is uh, we have a services business. So um, we will detail your car, wash the outside, uh, check your tires, um, change your windshield wipers, do an oil change. Um, so all of that delivered to your car too. Um, so, so that's, you know, a, a maybe obvious extension of delivery to vehicles. Um, and that's, you know, that's something we do. We have a set list of services that we offer now and we could grow that a lot over time. Um, but for now we're just kind of trying to do what we do now really well. Um, so that's one piece of the strategy. And then, you know, the big question is like, why, why did you join a gas company when everybody's trying to move to electric? Um, and, and I, you know, I certainly asked myself and my boss that question in the interview process quite a bit. And the, you know, the perspective that we have, um, is that, Honestly, we don't know what's going to win the energy war for vehicles moving forward. Hydrogen looks promising in some places. Uh, Batteries look promising in some places. Um, You know, fuel is not going anywhere anytime soon, despite, you know, folks, myself included, who, who hope that ultimately the world does find a way to, to um, find power elsewhere. But, but the concept is the same, right? I mean, we are driving towards a delivery-based economy and cars are going to need power. It, you know, vehicles are going to need power. Um, so whatever driving looks like in the future and, and so on, um, we believe as, as Yoshi that uh, the power is going to need to be delivered to wherever those vehicles are. And we, you know, our trucks um, currently have fuel tanks on the back of them. It would be very easy for us to swap them out for hydrogen tanks or put big batteries there and, and so on. So we don't really consider that um, an existential threat. We obviously pay a lot of attention to it. Um, but for now, you know, fuel, there's just so much to do in fuel. And over time, as we see where, where the world goes, we'll, we'll change with it. And what's not going to change is that vehicles need power to move. No, and it, it does seem like you, you have multiple market opportunities 
as as well in the future. And like, look, let's not forget or or neglect to mention that even in electric powered cars, like those batteries and the Tesla have a cost on the environment. It's not as maybe obvious as as gas, but I think that gets often underlooked. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the service thing because my next question was about the reviews for Yoshi. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, it's exciting to get your car filled up with gas, but it's a lot more exciting if you walk out and the oil's changed and it's cleaned and washed and stuff. What What's the pricing model that you all use? Is it, is it like a subscription base where you pay a monthly fee and get certain, like a weekly, or is it a la carte or both, something else? It's... Um... Like, honestly, this is an evolving thing, which is very exciting for me on the finance side, getting to think through alternatives. Um, but right now and historically, it's just it's a subscription model for consumers. So it's $20 a month, first month free, so you can make sure that you like it. Um, and then $20 a month uh, for access to the service. And then you can order whatever service you need for your car, um, whether that's, you know, services or fuel and at some point if you if you have a million cars uh then you're considered a fleet and fleet pricing varies we can do kind of a per vehicle uh fill up fee or we can do a surcharge on fuel got it sorry for cutting you off there what was the threshold of fleet how many cars Right now, we kind of flag if somebody has four four cars when they sign up their fourth car, we'll say, "Hey, we need to you know consider reconsider your pricing." Now, if someone's listening to this and they're like, "This is the best service I've ever heard of in my life," where are you? I mean, this is a global audience, but mostly in the U.S. So, if I sitting in Charleston, South Carolina, wanted this service, could I get it? Where where? Not right now. Um, so our our markets that we're in these days are, um, and thank you for this question. I appreciate the opportunity to advertise. Um, Nashville, Tennessee. We're in Houston and Texas. We're in LA and the Bay Area in California. And we're in the whole Detroit area. That's where GM's corporate campus is. And as a partner, we, we service their employees. Um, so we're we're kind of all over Southeast Michigan. That makes sense. Is is the hope someday to be more at least regional in the U.S. or TBD post COVID? Absolutely, yeah. And and as I said, you know, we um, were in twenty markets, and that was on strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, now the idea is let's you know move to our like just consolidate in our larger markets and really invest in those and grow those so that we're not, you know, selling across 20 markets and, and so on. Um, and then just to make sure, I mean, we don't really know what the economic, obviously the economic impact of this uh, COVID thing is going to be and how long it's going to last, et cetera. It's not as a startup right now. Um, you don't want to rely on future funding really. So it's a real shift to which, which as a startup, like a lot of startups do, they're like, oh, we'll raise another round. You know, we don't have to focus on profitability yet. But for us, you know, we're just trying to be risk averse and say, let's really focus on making sure that um, should we not have that opportunity, um, 
that we're really focusing on the markets where we know we have real expansion potential quickly. Um, and then that'll let us get, get back to um, all over the country where we were before. This has been fascinating for me. Thank you so much for walking us through that. You, you said you, you talked a little, you made a nod to your background earlier. I'd love to learn more about that. Where did you grow up? I grew college? up um, in Oakland, California, in the Bay Area, um, and also a little bit. Um, my dad was an academic, and he every five years would have sabbatical, and he would go do his sabbatical in Switzerland. And so we, as a family, we moved to Switzerland for a year every five years, and just my parents threw us into the public education system in French, and that was that. Um, so, uh, I spent a little bit of time, uh, in Switzerland here and there, but my home base was, uh, in the Bay area in California. And then for college, um, I went to, uh, uh, ended up going to Princeton, uh, over in New Jersey. So moved across the country for that. What was your dad an academic in? Mathematics. I mean, that must've been cool to go to Switzerland. Any, any interesting stories from there growing up there? Yeah. I mean, it, in retrospect, it certainly is. And I had really great material for essays all through my life, college application essays and so on, because, you know, all of the adversity, you know, not understanding language and so on. But, um, so it was, it was helpful. And in retrospect, I really appreciate that about my upbringing, um, it was, I mean, I'm joking about adversity, but it was really hard. You know, you're five years old and you just get uprooted and thrown into a place where you don't speak the language. It's not, it's not easy. Um, and, um, it really contributed to various components of my personality and my approach to things. Um, so I did that when I was five, I was, I mean, I remember it, but I don't, remember it super well. Um, and then I, uh, managed to completely forget French in the next five years. So when I went back, when I was 10, uh, you know, I was all over again. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, they just, they really do things differently there. They really operate differently there. I mean, down to, uh, just the meal schedule. So in the U S dinner is really kind of the meal. In Switzerland, lunch is the meal, and you get two hours off in the middle of the day, To and everybody goes home and has their family lunch, like people leave work, etc. Everybody's home for a big meal at lunch, and then you go back, back to school, back to work. Um, and so, you know, just, just totally different things about life. They also didn't really have school on Wednesdays for the most part. Um, so... Uh, you know, it just, it just changed the way that I think about things. And I'm really grateful in retrospect, but at the time I, I wouldn't say that I was thanking my parents through and through. <laughs> so what, what, what's an example of something that you, you think differently about based on that experience? Well, I, you know, as it relates to work and just my approach to life, I think I mentioned earlier that I like change. Um, 
And that, I mean, Switzerland, we traveled all around Europe. Like I, I just really, really enjoy traveling. I mean, it's a huge part of my life. And, um, and that's because I want to be thrown into something new, you know, and that's really translated for me, um, all over the place, uh, whether it's just willingness to up and move somewhere new or take on challenges that I have no idea whether or not I'll succeed at, uh, et cetera. And I, you know, I think that that, uh, probably came at least in part from, from my parents just throwing me into it in Switzerland. Yeah. That's really interesting. Where, where did your father teach in the Bay area? You uh, UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley. Okay. Yeah. So why did they have Wednesdays off? Would you go to school on the weekend? Or? <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually know. No, it just, I, I've, I remember we had half days on Wednesdays and I just remember the kid being like, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I don't know why they do that. I don't know if they still do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely from I've I've never been there, but you know, a lot of those countries definitely seem to prize things other than than work. But I know you work you work super hard a lot. I mean, how do you balance work with having a life outside of work, or do you, are you more of an integrator of the two? I think I'm an integrator. I mean. I- uh, the idea of work-life balance to me is like, oh, is work not part of my life? Like, what do you mean balance? Like, what? That's just part of my life. Right. Um, and I try to overall optimize so that I like my life, you know. And um, I do, I do work a lot. Um, and I think also people think that I work a little bit more than I do because I tend to be always on. So I'm always responding to stuff, whether it's on my phone or jumping onto my computer or, or whatever that is. Um, and that's better for my overall happiness. I, if I go on vacation and I don't have access to look at a single email for two weeks, that causes me a ton of stress and it makes my vacation stressful because I have no idea what I'm coming back to. If I just browse through my emails, respond here and there, know what I'm coming back to, I feel a lot better. So, um, so that, yeah, that's been, uh, my approach to work-life balance is just, it's not, it's all life and, um, you, you do what you have to do. Yeah. That it's weird that, uh, that anxiety of what's going on or what am I going to come back to? Actually my system right now that works pretty well. Cause I find it, it's, it's hard for me to turn it off. So if I mm. was to like, be on vacation and have my work phone and you know Slack and stuff. I would just check all the time, and then I wouldn't really. I, I've come to appreciate as I've gotten a little older. The break does a couple things. One, it, it gives me energy. You know, it gives me energy to come back recharged. It's also, you know, I probably have three good ideas a year. They typically happen <laughs> away from work, not staring at my laptop but my system right now is i tell my managers i'm not going to check work email or slack but text me if you need Mm -hmm. especially if it's an emergency and don't feel like you can't because it gives me a huge peace of mind that you will 
if if you need me. And and it doesn't happen a lot, but I that's sort of my system right now where I kind of thread the needle between between the two. Yeah, I like that. And I in general I do think one can rely on that. Like, okay, you're not checking email, whatever, but like if someone really needs you, they know how to call you, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what's going to happen, whether you like it or not. And so, uh, you know, for people that benefit from that kind of peace of mind, you know, I, I would embrace, you know, what you just said, too. I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I benefit from being on and it's in both directions. Like, I'm not going to, like, ignore my text messages all day at work. If I had a job where I wasn't allowed to check my texts and be on my phone all day i i would get fired well yeah it's 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 <laughs> weird right if like back in the day you're like huddling over your laptop to like check your hotmail account or something it's like yeah it's like yeah i'm checking my gmail right now okay like yeah <laughs> don't, don't 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 worry about it so yeah so you uh you you grow up a West coast girl and, and, and then obviously go to the East coast for Princeton where I believe you studied economics. Talk to me about that decision, both to go across the country as well as study economics. Yeah. I mean, going across the country, you know, I, um, could have gone to a UC in California, um, with my dad working in the UC system that just felt, it felt way too close to home. Um, and then, I, um, I wanted to study electrical engineering at the time. I really liked math and science, um, in high school and in life. I really, really liked it. I did mathletes in high school and, and so on. And I really liked computer science. I really liked programming the limited, you know, I did AP, whatever. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, well let's combine all three electrical engineering. That's what I'm going to want to do. Um, and so I applied, I applied to way too many schools. I applied to a million different schools because I was confident, you know, I would just wanted to have some options. Um, and, um, I got into some really good electrical engineering programs, but they all, I just felt nervous. And I think probably it was me knowing somewhere in my soul that I wanted to feel like, you know, if I went to MIT, it would be like, you better like engineering. (laughs) That's what they're good at. And Princeton, I mean, I hope I don't offend anyone with this, but it's not, you don't think of it as an engineering school. It has a good program, but um, it's really diverse and it's really good for a lot of things. I mean, you, you kind of can't go wrong there. And I think that really appealed to me is just like, okay, if I'm wrong, you know, I can switch into something else and it'll still be, you know, an amazing education that's worth paying this kind of money for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was some part of it. And then also my sister went to Princeton. And so I think it just, you know, moving across the country was scary for me. And I think it just felt safe because I had visited there. I'd stayed, you know, in my sister's dorm before and, and so on. And so, um, if I'm honest with myself, I think it was that, I think I knew that I wouldn't last in electrical engineering and I felt more comfortable doing what my sister had done. At what point did you pivot majors? Very late. So the thing about engineering and nobody, nobody talks about this except for me. I feel like, but the thing about engineering is most engineering programs. So you, you, 
have no exposure to real engineering in high school. You just, right. you like math and science and you're told, so you're told engineering, engineering, I don't know. and fine. So I'm like, well, I better do that, you know? And then, um, then you go to college, you enroll in engineering. And basically the first two years, all you do is math and science, at least at Princeton. I mean, it was like computer science, you know, all do all sorts of math classes and, and all these, you know, they weren't prereqs. They were part of the engineering program, but it's not, you know, I wasn't doing electrical engineering except that I was doing a lot of physics work in circuits. And I loved that. I loved it. I loved all of it. I continued to love math and science and computer science. Um, And then I started doing actual electrical engineering. And the difference for me was moving from, okay, you're doing a theoretical circuit into, okay, spend you know, 14 hours a day in a lab trying to make this car run, you know, and, you know, you're looking at things, microchips under a microscope and that's not for me. And it was clear right away that that was not for me. I wanted to leave the lab. I was not interested in the problems anymore. Um, and so, you know, I kind of had this moment and, and it was actually, it was really hard for me to transfer out of electrical engineering. I was doing reasonably well, and there are very few white females in electrical engineering and the school didn't, I mean, they didn't want to let me go. Um, and so that was, I mean, just emotionally hard on top of everything else. I also just felt like I was failing out, which I kind of was, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't good at the physical engineering. I was like, I wasn't, wasn't good at it. So, um, it, it, it was a hard transition and it was also very late in the game. So I had limited options for what I could transfer into. I think it was moved to another engineering discipline. Didn't sound smart. Um, uh, study. I think I could have done astrophysics, which, uh, I don't know why I would, have or wouldn't have. I mean, fine, but I, I don't know. I don't have any particular passion for it. Uh, I could have done French, which, uh, you know, I had taken a lot of French because I en- enjoy it. It brings me back to Switzerland and I could do well in it because I speak French, you know? And, um, so that felt like a cop out or I could have done econ and econ. Um, my mom's an economist. My parents are both PhDs. Um, and so econ <laughs> felt like, okay, my parents are gonna, are gonna feel good about this education choice. There was, I always felt whether it was real or not, I always felt some like pressure to do something quantitative. Um, and so, uh, so, so yeah, I, I basically was like, okay, econ it is. And I did the, the math track, um, so that it was more quantitative because I felt really self-conscious about kind of failing out of engineering in my own brain. And, um, so that's where I ended up. And it's also, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, versatile degree. You can kind of pursue whatever you want out of college with an econ degree. By the way, how was dinner growing up? With two parents, (laughs) it's PhDs. I can't. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for Thanksgiving dinner this year. What Um, what do you all talk about? (laughs) You know, my dad was a really, really good dad in that he he really like connects with kids or connected with kids, and you know, so he would tell. I mean, the best stories out of nowhere and all this kind of stuff. So. 
And he in general was not, um, I mean, if you knew him in an academic setting and were a fellow academic, he was super intellectual and he's very, very smart guy, but he wasn't, I mean, you would, you wouldn't know that if you met him necessarily. He just kind of was like a, you know, goof who tucked his pants into his socks, you know, that's like, (laughs) um, so that's that. My, my mom is a really, really hard worker. So, so I didn't, you know, I think I, I did internalize pressure around the math stuff, but I, I couldn't point to why. I just want to make sure I understand. So you said you were doing reasonably well in engineering and, and then the other comment was around sort of not doing as well or borderline failing. Is, is that, were you doing better in one area of another or is reasonably well, well hanging on by I your was fingertips doing really well no i was doing really well while it was all math and science and circuits on paper yeah. and then i i was like oh i'm gonna start doing really badly and i don't like this anymore this is you know not what i thought i was going to be doing and so it was more um in my own brain, I felt like I wasn't good enough to be an electrical engineer. And I felt like I felt really ashamed of dropping out. But the school was like, whoa, whoa, wait, you can do this and you can do it well. Like, do you really want to leave engineering? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm hard on myself. When, when you said there there was pressure from the, the institution to not change, to, look, what did that, that look like? It almost makes me think of... I've got a high school guidance counselor telling a kid, you don't, you don't want to apply to these colleges because then the guidance counselor gets dinged if they don't get in or whatever. There's some kind of metric around acceptance rate by your top school or something. What did that manifest in? And, could, and was the shame you felt just that you couldn't do it or that you really were having that internal struggle of, I don't really want to do this and therefore it's going to make it harder to do it? Both, okay. both. Uh, but just on logistically what played out, I mean, um, you know, I, I guess in the ideal world, you go to the dean of the engineering school and you tell them, I want to drop out, please sign this paper. And they say, okay, mm-hmm. you know, do what what you're passionate about. And that's just, you know, the instead it was kind of like, why? Let's have a whole really extended conversation about it that's going to make you extremely uncomfortable and you know, I'm not going to sign, just think about it kind of thing, which, you know, I under, you know, I'm assuming this is related to metrics, but maybe it wasn't, maybe that's just his approach. And and that's understandable. It was just, it was really a hard time for me. Yeah. That would make sense to at least think about it for a little bit before you make a change. So you walk out of Princeton, by the way, what, for those who may not know, the senior thesis is a big deal. At, at Princeton, what did what did you do yours on? I did mine on, um, and and yeah, that's really cool that that you know that a lot of people really don't. Um, but I did my thesis. Um, I was really focused on econometrics, um, which is the economic term for statistics. So I looked at um, basically there was um, a policy reform um, under Clinton that said, um, we're going to make people go uh, like have earlier work requirements to go off, go back to work um, 
off of welfare. I, I should remember this. I kind of don't. Um, but anyway, I basically looked at what, will, so, okay. So you got to go back to work sooner or you have to, you know, or you lose your welfare benefits, I think. And what impact did that have on women's breastfeeding rates? Because the idea being, if you have to go back to work sooner after you leave the workforce because you're having a kid, you know, can you basically not breastfeed because of that? Because you're going to, you know, lose any source of income. And so that's what I looked at. I did find a correlation between the two. The next interesting step would be to say, okay, like women breastfed less because of this. So did that have an impact on the children? Right. Um, and that, that wasn't this in the scope of my thesis, but I still wonder about it. That's really interesting. And I won an award. <laughs> so that's always good. That was, that's like the, the coolest thing about the thing that I'm most proud of at Princeton was winning the best thesis in econometrics. That's really cool. What, what made that interesting to you? How did that come up as, as something you wanted to research? Honestly, um, uh, I was asking around for ideas from professors and someone said that and I thought it was really interesting. It's not some deep-seated passion hey, that I have. Sometimes the best starts with a very straightforward way. That's cool. Yeah. So you graduate at the last minute with an economics degree, award-winning thesis, congrats. And then you, you do go to IBM in a consulting gig at that point? I did, yeah. So at that point, you know, I graduated. I had this econ degree. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> and um, a lot of, a lot of um, Princeton better work just kind of funnels onto Wall Street. Um, and I, I just, I felt burnt out by Princeton, like the hours that people put into investment banking. I was like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm already burnt out. <laughs> like, right, right. I, I need to calm down. Yeah. And, um, and so I decided to do consulting. I mean, not that that's like the easiest career choice or, or lowest hours or anything, but basically I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that, and I think a lot of people go into consulting for this reason. It's just like, it's pretty broad. You don't know what projects you're going to get on. You'll get exposure to a lot of different stuff. IBM had this program called Consulting by Degrees, where you were guaranteed to switch projects every six months and for two years. And so uh, that appealed to me. And then also, I basically followed a man to New York. Um, and IBM was a job where I could choose my location. And I hadn't really worked that much in New York either. So I, uh, my boyfriend got a good job in New York. So I went with IBM. Got it. Were you in there? I don't know if it's Westchester, White Plains, or were you actually in the city? In the city. In the city. Yeah. And you, you must have been able to scratch the the travel bug, or were you pretty landlocked? A little bit, yeah. I mean, my first project was in Long Island City, so over in Queens. Um, and Murmur. then my second project <laughs> was... Um, and then my second project um, turned into a whole thing. I never rotated off of that one because I liked it so much and they liked me in it. Um, 
But that one, I ended up making my way to India and to London uh, a few times. And so that, that, you know, did certainly uh, scratch the travel itch for me. Were you, it, if I recall correctly, IBM really reinvented itself at some point in the 2000s. Were you there for that or beginning, middle, end? Yeah, I mean, it was not that long after that. So IBM bought PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, which was their kind of, okay, we're going to do consulting now. Um, rather than be a business that sells machines. Um, and so, I mean, in addition to selling machines, but they really sort of started to transform into a consulting business. And then I joined that consulting business. I mean, it wasn't yesterday that they joined, that they bought PwC at the time, but, you know, you still heard the PwC name a lot. And most people you worked with were PwC people and, and so on. So it was early enough, like while, right after I got there, Watson won, um, whatever he won. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Um, so it was, it was definitely an interesting time for the company. Yeah. So you're, you're at IBM for about a year and a half, I believe. And then you go to Notch Partners, which is a, another uh, private boutique consulting for about another year and change. I mean, what, what was your thought leaving IBM and, and going there? C- clearly you were, interested enough in consulting to keep doing it. And then you later jumped to at Nexus. So what was the thought process and what did you learn along the way? Yeah. So, um, IBM was great for me. And in particular, this project that I stayed in for 18 months was, it was really great. Um, it came to an end. Uh, my boss at the time, who was a real mentor figure for me, he was moving to the Netherlands and I'd been given a new job within IBM. And so that was, I was tied to him, you know, and at the same time, I, um, I have health issues. I have major issues with my jaw. And so I had to go have this massive, massive jaw surgery. I had my jaw wired shut for six weeks. And so I'm, um, face broken into nine pieces. And so I was out on leave from IBM from that surgery. I had my jaw wired shut and they called me to tell me that I got a promotion. I was like, Thank you so much, you know? Um, and it was just pretty clear that the promotion was into one of those roles that would be, you know, four days a week on the road. And I needed to be close to my doctors. That just wasn't going to work for my lifestyle and my me at the time. So I, I didn't want to leave IBM, but that's why I did. Um, and I found Notch Partners, which is a private equity consulting firm. So I, I kind of felt like, like, uh, maybe I should have gone into finance. Like maybe I, I, I guess I just, um, wanted to see if I was up to the challenge. And so I was really interested in kind of the private equity world. What I did there that interested me most in the end was actually switch out the company's CRM system. I went in and I mean, you couldn't look up a single thing that was going on. And so, and so I really like, I, you know, I did the client work all day, but what I really found that like was really appealing to me was kind of internal operations and making the business more efficient. And it was really cool because, because I was actually in the job, my day job, I could, I could feel, I mean, here's how I used to work and here's how I work now with this new system. And I, I loved it. And I, you know, um, it was just, it was so rewarding. 
And so at that point at Notch, I was like, you know, I liked that. And this day job that I have do it, but I don't think that's what really makes me tick. And so I wanted to find something that was more internal operations and help other people do what they do better. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then at the same time, um, on the private equity side, we were looking at a whole bunch of deals. I was in the tech sector. We were looking at a whole bunch of deals in advertising technology. There was a lot of interest in the PE world and ad tech at the time. And so I just found that the most fascinating thing, just the most fascinating thing of like what it takes and how it works to serve an ad on the internet. I mean, you just browse your computer and it happens, but holy moly, that's complicated. So I started learning a lot about that. It was fascinating. And I decided, like, let me try to go see if I could do operations at an ad tech company. And so I emailed uh, Princeton, the listserv in New York. Well, that's how I found my job at Notch Partners, too, just email the listserv. I mean, it's a, it's incredible with the, the resource that that is. Uh, and, and, like, it's, you know, it's unfair. <laughs> it's unfair. <laughs> it really is. But anyway... I emailed and the CEO of AppNexus wrote me back. I said, I want to do operations at an ad tech company. Does anyone, can anyone help? And he wrote me back and he said, I can probably help. And <laughs> I had been, I had been, you know, I, he was like, call me, you know, B. He signed everything B, to B, yeah. Brian, Brian O'Kelly. So um, I, I knew who this guy was from having done my research in the ad tech space. And I was like, holy moly, you know? And so, I scheduled time with him um, and he on a Sunday night spent 90 minutes with me talking about what, what do I, you know, what makes me tick and so on, because he was just trying to think about what, what might interest me in the space. And he introduced me to effectively the CEOs, various general managers within Zaxis, Media Math, uh, like all the these really big players in the space. And he said, look, like, here are some companies that I think are really smart because it's easy to get lost. And there's a million companies that, that uh, I'm not sure if they'll succeed, Mm -hmm. Uh, but here are some companies I'll, I'll make some introductions, you know, see, see what you can do. And, you know, obviously more selfishly, I'd love for you to explore my company. And so we've made a few introductions to different people within AppNexus. And I had kind of informational interviews and it turned out that there was an operations role. And I ended up, I ended up getting, I mean, when you come in through the CEO of these companies, you get jobs, you know? And so I got some better offers. I, I, I got some really exciting stuff, but I was so impressed with Brian uh, just from that conversation that I, I, couldn't take anything else. Um, and so, so that's how I ended up at AppNexus. Yeah. I, I, a couple things. One, I, I think, I mean, that's why to some degree, I don't know if you agree with this, but that's why you pay the six figures to go to a Princeton for that listserv, that network. And Brian, I, I, and there's so many stories like that where he would spend a lot of time with definitely people from Princeton, but elsewhere. But I, I've also been on the receiving end of that Brian referral and you definitely, they go to the top of the list or, you know, it's, it's, um, one, cause you know, obviously he's the CEO, but also cause you know that there's probably a reason why. Yeah. Um, and, and at Mexus, I mean, this is where you, what you talked about earlier, you're 
passion for solving problems. I know of at least one interesting story where you intentionally went after the hardest problem, <laughs> but also this is where you sort of bopped around a little bit and, and did a few, quite a few different things within the same company. Do you want to walk us through your, your arch there? Yeah. So AppNexus was, I mean, just undeniably, um, potentially the best kind of career opportunity and experience that I'll ever have. And even if that ends up being true, then I still have a lot of great potential stuff in front of me. I mean, I just, just, it just happened to be that um, my arc there was, was really incredible for a lot of reasons. So I came in in a pretty junior operations role um, I was so impressed with the leadership of the team that I was on, a uh, man named Brandon Atkinson. I close worked closely with him. And actually, that's a real benefit to being in operations. It's kind of like this back office role that's like, uh, uh, you know, it can be grunt work. It really can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you, you can't, as a company, you know, hire a million people to be doing operations and streamlining things because it's too expensive. It's got to be a lean team and it's important to leadership. Leadership all day is hearing about like, this is too complicated. I spent all my time on this junk and operations is, you know, supposed to fix that. And so um, ops roles I've found are really powerful. I mean, if you work with leader, you work really closely with leadership, you're going to have that exposure. And if you impress people, you know, that's a good place to be. And so I had this ops role. Um, the company, Abnexus, I said I like change. Abnexus was perfect for me. I mean, uh, you would hate it there if you didn't like change. Um, and so basically for my five years there, every single nine months, um, there was a reorg. Yeah. And my boss would come to me and say, well, we're reorging. Um we want to give you a promotion and we're going to move you over here into this role. And almost every single time I said, I'll take the promotion, but I'd like to go over here. <laughs> um, because, you know, I would look at what they were offering me. And it's not that I wouldn't have done that job. It was just, I really am like attracted to problems. And um, I really, you know, get in my head that I want to fix something. And so, you know, I follow, I follow problems around. And so um, with that, I somehow made my way from finance and, or sorry, from operations into finance um, because in operations, I was doing a lot of sales enablement, working in Salesforce. And, and basically the situation at Nexus at the time was that um, because of some issues uh, with <clears throat> the way that things were running and operating in finance, yeah, sales practically couldn't sell. Um, and the customer service team was struggling. I mean, it was just really hard for people who interacted with clients because everything came back to a finance thing or that was their perception, whatever. And I just, I mean, coming from the outside, like an idiot, I'm like, why is it so hard to like produce a invoice like what's the problem you know what honestly like what is the issue like bill collect the money you know it was all this like customer facing stuff in finance that i had seen the impact 
elsewhere in the company. And I just, I was so curious. And so actually that first guy that I talked about, Brandon Atkinson, he led um, the services team initially. He moved over to HR and he, at, at, at one reorg at one point, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Alice, I've been thinking about you. And this is unbelievable that he did this. Like, so, I mean, all these stories you're hearing, it's like so amazing that I've like had these lucky moments, but Brandon was, you know, thinking about me and he was like, you're so good with numbers and things are broken over in finance. Like, have you thought about just going to talk to, you know, the, the finance leader, um, SVP of finance and see if you could offer help, you know, you're not a finance person, but you're just, you just think that way. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, yeah, but yeah, like I'd love to get involved in that problem. I don't understand what the problem is with generating an invoice. And I feel like I feel the customer pain. I understand the customer pain and I'd love to help solve that problem. And so talked to the SVP of finance and he was like, yeah, come run finance ops, do operations within the finance function. Um, and that's not a, a function that every finance team has, but he was basically really open to me just saying, well, I help people do what they do better. You know, I try to streamline things and make everything easier. And so I went over and did that. I worked really well with my boss, that SVP of finance. We just really clicked and um, the and and I ended up getting most involved with the items that had to do with the customer facing stuff, like the the problems that I really understood. Um, and so ultimately, I ended up kind of leaving leading that team. It was called the client finance team that did all of our billing and payments to customers. Um, and that that's where that's an example of like me taking on something that was such a stretch. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, the, the audit situation and, and so on, it's like, you don't have any real finance in your background, but my boss, and I, again, you know, you mentioned earlier, like talking about what you can't do. Like when my boss asked me to do that job, I was like, I, I don't know accounting, you know, I, I don't. And so I don't, I don't think you want me in that role. And he was like, like, I'll teach you. And he did. Mm -hmm. We had lessons, um, which was, I mean, amazing. Um, and so, so that's how I made my way into finance. And then, you know, I just continued to that same question of like, why is it so hard to make an invoice? Well, it turns out it really is hard. I could go on about that for a long time, but, um, but I just started asking why, 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 why? So when I took over that team, I met with every new employee and I um, met with every person and I just asked what they did. And in particular, I asked, like, what's your least favorite part of your job? Like, we all have that thing that's like, oh, I have to do this. Right. Um, and what's your least favorite part of your job? And, you know, people said, just told me these things that are like, you know, these kind of nonsense tasks that they have to do. And I kept asking, well, why, why do you do that? You know, and. A lot of people didn't know because not everybody, you know, when their boss tells them to do something, not everybody asks why. It's a it's a good practice, but um, but uh, why do you do that? And so one, uh, you know, an example that comes to mind: one woman, she told me, 
well, I hate, I hate doing the Germany invoices. And it turns out Germany has some law. They have to receive physical invoices. So you can't just send them an email with an attachment. Um, and so we were spending a tremendous amount of money, um, basically ensuring that our, our, uh, German clients got these invoices and got them timely and so on. Um, and I was like, sorry, how much, you know? And meanwhile, we had a finance function over in Europe, in Switzerland. And so I was like, well, what if, like, has, what if the Europe team did it? And she was like, that, yeah, that would make a huge difference. You know, we'd save, you know, 20 grand a year. And I was like, okay. So I called up the director of the Europe team and he couldn't say no, you know, right, <laughs> like, right. it's just so clear that that's what should happen for the company. And so I, you know, I told my boss, well, I just paid for my promotion, so <laughs> you should pay me more. I didn't get that raise, but, um, but, uh, yeah. And, and just asking why, 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 why I'm trying to understand things. And I was really lucky people were willing to teach me things and answer my million questions. And, um, and, you know, I'm not going to say that I went and solved the problem, but I like objectively, you know, uh, a lot of metrics did get, get better over time. So it's, it sounds like you just went in and asked straightforward questions and I'm simplifying this of course, but a lot of that, I mean, that problem, I think most people, and I think even myself have a bit of an adverse reaction to it. It's like, you don't want to, most people don't want to go near that problem with a 10 foot pole, let alone jump feet first in like you did. But is that a couple things? The one thing Brandon used to do is, is in services, we would have what we call the, the rock star interview. And the way I describe that interview is essentially you just want to know if you can if you put the person in any situation they're just gonna figure it out and I think you you embody that because stuff like accounting or I don't know Excel like you can learn those things but if you've got the the mojo to just be able to figure it out and be resourceful I think that that goes a long way and it's definitely something you you do well given the story you've told us. But is that it? You just sort of go in, you connect people, you ask questions and you keep asking why until you get a good answer. And then if you don't, you know, you need to fix it. What were some other things that you you did or thought about as you approached a pretty gnarly challenge? In general, I think that the strength that I bring to the table is um, logic. Like I'm not... I'm not brilliant. I don't think like super differently. I don't, I'm not going to like, you know, come, I don't put me in like product and expect me to like invent the new Apple computer. Like I'm not going to do that. But what I do is I think about things very logically. And when something's not logical in my brain, then I'm, I don't understand why. And so, um, and I think that a lot of people just accept things, you know, they're like, Oh, well, I don't know why I do this. It's fine. Um, and if they asked why, you know, they would, they would, um, make a logical conclusion too, but, but a lot of people aren't willing to do that. And it, it, you know, again, you have to be willing to um, put yourself out there to do that because it's, it's, it's not always an easy question to ask. Right. I mean, so you constantly risk looking really dumb. Um, and, um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just not always easy to do, but I, I can't help myself. Um, and on the, like, I guess the other thing for me is, you know, I said that I need to be learning every day. And uh, the second that I know what I'm doing, I'm bored. And so the idea of like going into accounting, like whatever else, like, well, I'm not going to be bored. So that's really appealing to me. Is that, is some of that the thinking logically, the putting yourself out there? I think one could listen to you and just be like, oh, that's just something Alice has. And, and I, I don't. Do you think it is something that is inherent in you or others? But could it also be learned like almost a muscle? Like, I think the more experiences you have where you put yourself out there and sometimes you're going to fall on your face, but most times you probably, it goes well, and that gives you more confidence to do it again and again. Is How do you balance that? This is uniquely within you versus these are things that you've built up these muscles over time. Yeah. I mean, I don't tend to think that, um, things are uniquely within me. I think that I've, you know, built certain, built on certain things because of life circumstances and, you know, all these lucky breaks and whatever else. Um, but I don't think that I'm like more logical than anybody else. You know, I mean, people do things for reasons. That's all people have logic for whatever they're doing. Literally anything that you do, you have a reason. And so, um, I, I do think that I have, I'm maybe more curious than the average person. Um, but, but that basic like strength of just like being willing to ask why, um, and I, you know, I accept that a lot of times I might disagree with something and the, the why is a bad answer in my brain and okay, but that one, just leave it alone and move on to the next one. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think that's uniquely me. I don't. But I do think it's a strength for me. Well, we, we've been talking for a while and I've had a blast, but I want to be respectful of your time and not take your entire evening. So I, I've just got a couple more questions and then we can wrap. What you, you mentioned, I believe your mentor at your IBM and then sort of some of the people you like Brandon that you looked out for you or, you know, were thinking about you and gave you ideas to go create opportunities. What was good about your IBM mentor and how have they played a role in your career throughout? If there are any other examples? Yeah. I mean, I've never made any kind of explicit and shame on me. I've never made any kind of explicit attempt to find mentors. Um, I've relied on people's generosity and kindness and that's, I've been lucky that that's been plentiful. Um, but I, you know, I do think that, um, I've been really lucky in having good bosses, um, and that I have ended up with, with mentor figures and certainly, you know, you can't help to end up looking up to people. Um, and so I, I think a lot of times the willingness to just, I look up to this person, let me just ask them this one question. Like, I don't need to like, they don't need to mentor me. It's just like, I wonder what their perspective is on this. Um, that goes, goes a long way. Um, I, like, I don't feel like I have these like career mentors and this person's always been instrumental in this, that, and the other, but like, you know, if I want someone's opinion on something, I ask for it. 
And I like that's that's created mentor figures uh, along the way for me. And I, you know, I still would. I would still reach out to him. Actually, I reached out to him the other day to say hi about something because some LinkedIn article reminded me of him. So I think, um, yeah, I think I I value that more and um, not so formal definition of of mentor. Thank you. So Alice, last last question. What what's one career insight? that you've, you've dropped a lot of knowledge, but what's one thing you'd love everyone to walk away with and think about applying to their own careers, whether they're early in their career or maybe they're going to retire in a few years? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one thing that um, it became apparent to me from people management, when you do performance reviews, right, you spend all this time as a manager thinking about you know, what does someone really bring to the table? And then what, what can they work on? And every employee that I've ever had, like every single time, they don't really care about their strengths. They, I mean, they don't like sit around feeling great about what they do. Well, they jump and they don't even really want to hear it. I mean, that part of them want to jump right to what's wrong with me and what can I fix? And I understand that instinct. I really do. And, you know, I, I do it too, to a certain extent. But I just think that people really, in in general, people miss embracing their own strengths. Like you don't need to spend all of your time worried about what you're not good at and trying it and challenging yourself. And but like you should do some of that. You should do some of that. But like I would not be good at marketing. Okay, I'm probably not going to like take on a marketing role as my next role. That d- doesn't come naturally to me. It would be a challenge for sure. But you know, that's probably not my problem to tackle. And, um, and so I I just would really encourage people to think about their careers that way. Like rather than what do I need to develop and how do I make sure that I have that? And, but it's like lean into what comes naturally to you and that you do really well and really listen to that advice. I mean, you hear it from other people, pay attention to what you're complimented on pay attention to what whatever you bring to the table and then do more of that and also you know care about what you can do better but um that's something that i think i think i've naturally done you know i think i've naturally done that and i think it's been helpful to me we're going to leave it right there alice that was great advice thank you so much for being on career corner the pleasure has been all mine thank you Well, there you have it. My conversation with Alice Jones. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you are a fan of Career Corner and you're finding these conversations valuable, I'd be honored if you would share it with your network or log into your favorite podcast provider and give us a five-star rating. We have a lot of great episodes coming up. I look forward to getting them out. And thank you. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Mars, I'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you.